Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and as ever, I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with climate disinformation specialist Jenny King, recorded at the end of September 2022. Jenny is Head of Civic Action and Education at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, or ISD, leading efforts to translate their digital research into frontline programming and response. She co-authored the current B Internet Citizens curriculum, formally accredited for UK schools, and provides regular briefings for UK government departments and regulators, for UNESCO, and for parallel European and US bodies on systemic approaches to media literacy. Jenny also oversees ISD's portfolio of climate mis- and disinformation, supporting a coalition of over 30 organisations worldwide to identify, analyse and counter the related harms. This includes running the first ever COP war room, monitoring disinformation threats at the COP26 summit, which is running again at COP27, right now. In June of this year, 2022, Jenny launched the largest ever report on this issue, titled Deny, Deceive, Delay, Documenting and Responding to Climate Disinformation at COP26 and Beyond. This was created on behalf of the Climate Action Against Disinformation Coalition, and I'm leaving a link to it in the show notes. It is highly recommended reading. Her writing and commentary has been featured on the BBC, The Guardian, Channel 4 News, Tortoise Media, Euronews, Tech Policy Press, NPR, and Drilled, amongst others. So naturally, I was thrilled that she took the time to talk to me about climate disinformation, the role of social media in spreading it, and amongst other things, some concrete ways that we can make a difference in the information war. This is Communicating Climate Change with Jenny King. (laughs) Nice to meet you, Jenny. How are you doing? Nice to meet you too. My big first question will be good for providing a foundation to this conversation. So you work at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. What the heck does that mean? Uh, so the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, uh, more commonly known as ISD or ISD Global, is an organisation that for the last 15 years or so has been tracking and responding to the rising tide of both extremist ideologies across the spectrum hate speech or hate as it manifests in public life, and more recently, in the last five or six years, disinformation and the role that that is playing in undermining democratic norms. So really, we're looking at the various factors, how they intersect with each other, and what they're doing in eroding our ability to tackle major issues and to live in safe and inclusive societies. Since we're going to be talking a bit about disinformation, I wonder if you could perhaps give a kind of guide to the difference between disinformation and misinformation. Absolutely. And it is a really important distinction, which can be summarised in its shortest form down to one word, which is intentionality. When we talk about misinformation, we are referring generally to the unwitting sharing of something that might be false. So I'm sure everyone has an example from their personal lives, maybe during the COVID-19 pandemic, of a well-meaning relative or friend who shared some viral article or post or tweet saying, oh, the coronavirus can be mitigated by X home remedy or by using this medicine that was previously prescribed for another illness 
business. And their intention in that situation, we have to assume, unless they really don't like you, was to help, was to try and avoid people that they loved getting sick or once they were sick to try and help them get better as quickly as possible. But ultimately it was based on either manifestly false or misunderstood and cherry picked versions of science. And as a result, its potential for harm was still as high. So, you know, people can share things with good intentions, but ultimately the result can be the same. Disinformation which is, is much harder to prove conclusively, is the willful sharing in order to mislead or deceive the public or a particular group of people. And sometimes that can be for cynical reasons, because, you know, the aim is to destabilize trust in society or, you know, the traditional institutions who have been um, gatekeepers of certain types of information and who have been trusted vectors for sharing that information with the public is to kind of weaken our faith in those institutions. But equally, it can be for financial reasons. There is an absolutely enormous and largely now decentralized market for spreading disinformation online, either through having sites or channels which gain a lot of followers and therefore can be monetized through advertising or because the spreading of disinformation increases your own personal brand and makes you more likely to be platformed in other ways. So there is a potential financial incentive for spreading this kind of content. Or, of course, there is a particular political agenda or worldview which you are trying to embed amongst a wider group. And you are using disinformation as one tool or one weapon in your arsenal in order to make that happen. Before we went any further... I wanted to ask my standard, big, broad question about the ways that communication can help in mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place. What was Jenny's perspective on all of that? I think there's two axes to this. The theory of change for our work on climate disinformation is that we don't just care about it because it irks us and because it's often spread by, you know, extremely objectionable individuals who also hold other racist and hateful views. We care about disinformation because climate action relies on a strong public mandate and a strong public mandate has to be prefaced on a common and good faith understanding of both the issue and the potential viable solutions going forward. And there is a lot that is not um, definitive. There are, are plenty of things that do need to be debated about what the best mitigation and adaptation strategies are for a particular society. And the message of of ISD and the message of our partners is not, we want to shut down all public conversation or you know any legitimate grievance about questions around climate and it should only be the IPCC who are ever allowed to say anything about climate change that is not the message the message is that if you want to have strong climate policy that actually fulfills the brief within the Paris agreement and other you know multilateral agendas for climate and meets the urgency of the problem then you need to be having a good faith debate. And at the moment, disinformation, as well as other vested interests, are muddying the waters to the extent that that is absolutely impossible. You can't ask the public, 
what do you support or where would you like to apply pressure on your government to be more responsive? Because there's such poor or fractured or um, inconsistent understanding of what the problem is, how a transition to cleaner energy or to you know, a net zero society might work and what the impacts would be on them and their communities. So that's one way where I think communication plays an absolutely vital role in tackling climate change. On a more scientific level, and if you want to focus purely on the aspect of the consumer's role in being a part of the solution, then I also think that communication is important in gradually trying to change consumer behavior. So trying to make people understand that the decisions and the power that they hold as spenders in society, and I know that this feels like a a difficult conversation to have during a cost of living crisis, but if we think about it in the broader sense, you know, the amount of power that you have in where you choose to invest and spend your money, whether it's on the everyday items like groceries or the much bigger items and decisions that you're making, that that does need to change for everybody. My own personal opinion, and I think this is probably shared by a lot of people, is that there has probably been an overly intensive focus on individual consumer behavior because it's a very neat distraction from the massive structural and industrial shift and regulation that needs to take place. So I by no means want to put the burden for solving climate change on your average person trying to buy their weekly shop. However, it is absolutely true that our relationship with consumerism and with capitalism does have to change. And there are vital aspects of communication on what that means and where you can start to make more environmentally sound choices that probably requires a lot more kind of human human bandwidth behind it and kind of creative methods to get people engaged in that conversation. I think we've already seen an enormous shift over the last decade in how prominent that conversation is in public life, certainly in the UK and Europe and North America and other contexts, right? You would never have heard the kind of ESG corporate agendas or even their attempts to greenwash their brands be relevant in the early 2000s because there wasn't consumer pressure for that to be part of their mission as as corporate entities and private sector bodies. So that's already a big shift and communications was a large part of that. Yeah, I guess uh, the inevitable rise of that kind of concern and that part of the discussion also brings the flip side, which is the inevitable rise of greenwashing. I potentially take a, a longer term view of greenwashing in that I think the fact that corporations and huge multinational conglomerates and even oil and gas companies feel the need to greenwash is at least the first victory for the climate movement, because it shows that they feel enough pressure and enough scrutiny from the public that they need to put out better PR. Obviously, the next stage is to continue ramping up that scrutiny so that they're not allowed to get away with continuing bad actions, but packaging it up in a neater and more Twitter-friendly way so that we get off their back. But I, I think the fact that greenwashing exists at all is a sign that the landscape has shifted dramatically. Speaking of shifting landscapes, I was keen to understand how social media has been harnessed to serve the goals of disinformation and how exactly it helps to amplify this harmful content. 
I think the way to view social media is is that it is the most immediate point of entry to a broad public. So if you're talking about non-specialized communities, your, your average citizen who potentially doesn't think about climate change every hour of their waking life cares about it on an abstract level, maybe doesn't know a huge amount, amount about it. It's not only that people get a lot of their news or their understanding of the world from social media, but more importantly, it's where they're engaging with with trusted intermediaries, as you might call it. So who are the influencers? Who are the friends and peers and colleagues or people that share their passions and hobbies who help to shape and inform their worldview? So it's an incredibly uh, potent space and fertile ground to influence people's opinion, perhaps more so than the traditional media, which holds a very different space in people's lives and is seen as being you know, the source of credible, you know, capital letter C information, but potentially doesn't have that kind of personal connection and bleed into every aspect of people's lives in the way that social media does. What we've seen that's been particularly interesting is for 50, 60 years, oil and gas giants and those involved in the petrochemicals industry have been investing enormous unprecedented amounts of money in trying to shift public opinion in one direction or the other using traditional means like advertising, which are obviously also available and can be micro-targeted and A-B tested and minutely honed to be as persuadable as possible using the kinds of ad tech systems available on social media platforms. But actually, what's a much bigger issue now, as far as our work is concerned, is what you might call the kind of organic ecosystem for disinformation. And particularly the role that verified or blue tick accounts, as they're sometimes known, across platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, the role that they hold as being content hubs and influencer hubs for a climate disinformation community globally and cross-border transnationally, and particularly individuals who might never previously have had an interest in climate change. So in our work, we often refer to them as non-climate influencers. And these are people who have co-opted environmental issues as part of their wider brand. And that is very often a quote unquote, and I really could not emphasize the quote unquote more, but the sort of countercultural, contrarian, intellectual dark web, anti-woke, um, culture wars, grievance politics uh, type brand. And they have seen that this, this, this issue set seems to be one that can galvanize an audience and mobilize them into outrage in the same way that other things like sexual and reproductive health rights or racial equality or gender equality or LGBTQ plus issues are. And as such, it's just one pillar in the broader worldview that they want to spread, which is usually one about sort of antagonism and pushback against elites or perceived elites, um, a general sense of, of kind of antipathy and hostility towards uh, traditional government institutions or the idea of big government and multilateralism at all. And social media has been, again, a, a perfect soil for those people to both create a community 
that is very devoted to their content to be able to monetize that content and therefore make a professional career out of being online personalities. And then to have that content amplified through a number of different means, whether it's the kind of cross posting that you see between influencers where they are continually platforming each other and referencing each other's work. And that seems to create this veneer of credibility because you see the same people in a hundred different places and that convinces you that, oh, they must be experts on this topic, but actually, you know, it's they're actually quite insular communities that give each other oxygen, um, but also the way that they have actually manipulated the architecture of the internet and the fact that there isn't safety by design and these platforms are optimized for engagement. So they are optimized for the most incendiary content and that content is often disinformative. How on earth do we deal with this? Are practitioners even capable of playing a role here or is it strictly regulation, regulation, regulation? There is a very clearly articulated playbook being used by disinformation actors and it is tragically uncreative in many ways. That's sort of what hurts so much as you look at this disinformation and a lot of it is unbelievably lazy. I think there is still this perception in a lot of people's minds that disinformation campaigns require this hyper-tech literate group of hackers who are based in some shadowy room near the Kremlin. And that is a very outdated image of what the disinformation ecosystem looks like. The reality, and I'm not encouraging your listeners to do it, but is that the barrier to entry is criminally low. Almost anybody can spread disinformation. And if you're good at manipulating the tools of the internet, or if you happen to have your own organic following, you can get that disinformation out to the widest possible audience almost instantaneously. And it can then cross-fertilize from mainstream media through to more fringe platforms like 4chan and Discord and vice versa. So that playbook has been laid out not only in a climate context by us and our partners, but in other contexts by other research within ISD and, and many other organizations. If you know that playbook as a practitioner, you should be able to study it. And if not, recreate it, at least pull out the techniques that we think are ethically justifiable and try and wield them in the opposite direction. For example, astroturfing, which is flooding the zone with content on a particular issue so that it seems like it's the prevailing public opinion. That can be done through bots, but it can also be done through completely legitimate or completely um, verifiable human accounts. And when we think of astroturfing, we're often thinking of the worst possible case examples like the Chinese government astroturfing Twitter with pro-Beijing lines of argument or you know, geopolitical stances. But equally, you can astroturf for progressive causes. And one platform where I think you've seen a lot of these efforts happening in a totally organic way that have not been studied at scale is TikTok, because TikTok is a medium that has been driven by a younger user base. It's not exclusively their user base, but it is ultimately the go-to platform now for those in their teens, their 20s, their 30s. And you have seen political organizing happen in an entirely different way via that medium in ways that I actually don't think we have had ethical conversations about. So 
Trump is holding a rally and an influencer on TikTok says, all of my followers go and spam the registration form for this Trump rally so that it looks like all of the spaces at this rally are filled up. And then it's hugely embarrassing for him when he goes to the venue. And actually, it was all false registrations from those who are on a different end of the political spectrum. Now, we at the moment don't have a rubric for understanding whether we're really comfortable with that as progressive movements, but there are tools that are at our disposal. It's not like the internet is just the wild, wild west for bad actors. And the climate sector has to be more creative and more engaging and, for want of a better word, kind of more youthful in the way that it is using all of the different creative mediums on offer within the internet to make its case and to engage the public. I did an interview earlier this year, which was very much focusing on on a communications angle as well, at least for part of it. And the interviewer was asking me with sort of increasing incredulity and frustration, why are we not winning the information war on climate change? We have the facts, we have the science, we have the experts, we have the credibility, we have the data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have the means. And he sort of could not get his brain around the fact that we are, at the moment, you could argue, sort of abjectly failing uh, in the effort to win the, the information war around climate change. And I I was trying to point out that there are extenuating factors which we can't control. For example, the billions of dollars that are being invested by those who want to preserve petrochemical industries or, or other forms of polluting technologies or who ultimately don't want to change society at all. Um, But And there are also parts of the architecture of social media platforms, as we were discussing, that do bias towards more disinformative or hateful or incendiary content. But that isn't the full picture. It is also that we have just not really managed to galvanize the sector into doing communications in a way that is resonant in 2022. does seem like it should be easier than it is because there are arguments that should resonate with a whole host of different audiences. And a huge amount of work is being done now by academics and communicators and partners of ours like the Conscious Advertising Network who do fabulous work in this space to really think about that kind of messaging. But we need to do it a thousand times bigger than we currently are with a thousand times more investment than we're currently putting into it. And we need to make much better use of the influencers and the public intermediaries who are on the side of climate action. You know, who is the equivalent of Tucker Carlson in the pro-climate space? Who is the equivalent of Jordan Peterson? And the names don't immediately come to mind. And people like Greta Thunberg have been like, Atlas holding up the world, you know, for the past however many years, which were not roles that I think she she particularly wanted to sign up for. And she also is, as a result, the kind of lightning rod for all of the misogyny and hate and anti-climate sentiment globally. But we can't just have one person or even two people or even five people being communicative figureheads for this enormously complex topic. We have to think about who are the people at the local level that interface with communities? 
Is it religious leaders? Is it trade unions? Is it healthcare providers? Is it social workers? Is it online influencers, but at the much more micro level? Is it musicians? The list goes on. Apart from, okay, maybe Leonardo DiCaprio and a few others, again, we haven't done a very good job of building up that roster of those who can take a message into wider society. Beyond outperforming the disinformation camp online, as well as finding and platforming our champions and influencers, what other tools might we have at our disposal? A question I hear a lot from people working in marketing and advertising, for example, is should they be shaking up their careers? What's their role in all of this? So I certainly think that there are, um, there are advertising agencies out there who either do fantastic pro bono work for the environmental sector or who, as their fundamental ethos, have taken a much more ethical approach to how they build their portfolio and the kinds of material that they want to put out into the public sphere. And I mentioned earlier our partners, Conscious Advertising Network. They're by no means the only agency that does that, but I think they're a fantastic example. So yes, if you wanted to do a full career shift, you could go towards an agency like that. Or indeed, and this is, is potentially even more important, if you work for one of the big agencies, is to encourage them to divest from fossil fuel customers or those who are clearly antithetical to the goal of effective climate policy. So I think employees within big agencies can encourage senior leadership to, to think about their portfolios and the fact that this is not the direction of travel anymore. You know, we are going to lose the, the good opinion of the public. We are going to lose credibility. You are going to lose your talent pool because future creatives are not going to want to work for companies that, that represent those kind of clients. On the kind of bigger question of how you actually construct messaging that is resonant, for climate, it's a similar issue that you have with other major generational challenges of our time within the progressive movement, which is how do you make nuance intelligible? The reason why disinformation is easy, in part, is because there's no grey area. You can say climate change doesn't exist. Or you can say climate change exists, but it's been completely overblown. Or you can say wind and solar energy is never going to be able to sustain the level of activity in, in the grid. And you don't need to have any kind of smaller argument circulating around that. You can just go all in on these big headline claims. When you're talking about potential solutions to climate change or mitigation and adaptation, it is unfortunately not that simple. We're in a much more difficult position in the pro-climate sector because there is so much nuance, you know? We want there to be a commercial incentive for wind farms and solar energy and heat pumps. But there are major economic and infrastructural barriers to having those at scale, even in a country like the UK. And as soon as you try and be candid about what some of those potential obstacles are going to be, it's immediately seized upon by the disinformation actors to say, see, it's totally unpractical and too expensive. Let's just stick with what we've got. So I would say where we need the intellectual and creative heft of communicators is in trying to distill all of those really, really difficult conversations into stuff that makes sense to average citizens that do not have the time or the interest to read all of the fine print. Lovely stuff. So, what were your main takeaways? What will you be applying in your own communications efforts? Or perhaps in your own career? It was a lot of food for thought. 
I'll be digging through that disinformation playbook, link in the show notes, for inspiration on where and how to act on my social platforms, as well as spending a bit more time exploring TikTok. I really thought I could get away with opting out on that one, but I guess not. Who knows, maybe I'll find a champion for climate action to coax onto the show further down the road. We'll have to see. So those are my next steps, but how about you? Thanks to Jenny King for taking the time to share so many powerful insights with the show. You can find links to ISD's website, as well as some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. I'll be covering a wide range of topics with upcoming guests, digging deeper into greenwashing, for example, and the ways that communication can drive behaviour change, as well as the role of imagination in helping us find our way. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the skills and inspiration we'll need for this grand task, so be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.